All right, 2 Corinthians 3, and we are on verse 4. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 4. And such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. So, uh, we have some interesting passages to discuss. We'll see how far we get. But let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for another Sunday that we can gather uh, together as brothers and sisters in Christ and open up the Scriptures to pray together, to fellowship together, to encourage and admonish one another that we might grow in our mutual salvation. And we pray for those who are listening around the, the world and around the country uh, that are not finding fellowship wherever it is that they live. We pray that you would bless them, that they feel a part of this study, and that you would uh, care for them and look after them and minister to their needs. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I, I, think I threw in... A couple letters from people out around the country here. Now, Dick alluded to this one last week. I just want to share this with you so you know that what your discussion here is blessing other people. Okay? I just want to let you know how thankful I am for your ministry. My sister and I have been doing our daily Bible study with you. We did one Thessalonians just, and, and just finished two Thessalonians sermons today. We then go on Skype with our webcams and discuss what we've learned from you and the Word. So there are some people that are finding fellowship in learning the Bible. I'm also uh, hearing from people. We're already starting to put our hermeneutics class up on the web, and people are listening to that too and learning with us. So... We're trying to give people the meat of the Word that they can grow in their Christian walk. So last week, we were just, this is ringing. Is that a little hot? Okay. Is that better? Yeah. Um, last week, we were finishing verse 3, uh, written uh, not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So the idea of the tablets is being introduced here by Paul and will, and it will be part of our discussion throughout chapter three. And actually the, the concepts that he'll teach in chapter three will be uh, also mentioned in second Corinthians chapter four. And Paul is making a contrast here between the old covenant words engraved on stones and the new covenant words engraved on hearts. Okay? And, and it, we need to be careful how we interpret this. And I'll point out here when we get to verse 6 that that verse has had a history that goes back to the very early centuries of the church of being misinterpreted. And in its misinterpretation, uh, the church ended up with the allegorical method of biblical interpretation. Because some people decided that the letter means the real literal meaning of the Bible, and the spirit is the spiritual meaning that's somehow different. Yeah, the imaginary meaning. And that, uh, as bad as that sounds, and we should really know better, for hundreds and hundreds of years, that's what people believe. And I'm going to quote uh, the Reformers uh, uh, stood against that interpretation. I have a quote of Calvin commenting on how bad that is. Because what it did was it gave the church this allegorical method, and so the Bible meant something other than what it actually says. And then, since that opened up uh, Pandora's box of any possible idea, the church then reined it in a little bit by saying that only the teaching magisterium of the Catholic Church could determine what that allegorical meaning was. Okay, so now you have a Bible that doesn't mean what it says, and you have a church that's going to tell you what it means and the, the meaning that they derive isn't linked to the text itself. And so 
I say that just to show how important it is to get the Bible right, to understand what it means, because misinterpreting one verse put the church and ultimately Western civilization into darkness for, de- for centuries during the Dark Ages. Yes. I was just going to say that the, the way that you interpret it, the way that this is interpreted, ends up needing a hierarchy to keep anarchy at bay. Exactly. That's exactly what happens because uh, the scripture itself doesn't control the meaning once you have this allegor- allegorical method. So what, what we want to do is find out what Paul is meaning here. And uh, the contrast is between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And it's not that what was written on stones didn't mean what it said. Okay, When God wrote the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone, and he said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, what does that mean? Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. The God, that's what it means. It means what it says. And uh, that God is the only true God, and all the other gods are false. And anybody that adheres to another god is uh, an idolater and is in rebellion against God. So it wasn't that the words God wrote on stone didn't mean what they said, but that the hearers themselves, because of the hardness of heart, were not able to keep what it said. And so we read verses last week about the New Covenant, particularly uh, Jeremiah 31-33. We had someone read that. And there we saw that God promised that at, one, at a future point, when the New Covenant is made, that God would write His laws on hearts. Now those laws written on hearts aren't something different, but it's the ability and the grace and the light of the Holy Spirit indwelling us to give us the desire and ability to do those things that God has always commanded in His moral law. Not to give us secret meanings that couldn't have been understood uh, unless you had some uh, mysterious or allegorical or uh, other way of interpreting the Scripture. Um, Okay, so God writes on hearts. Let's look at verse 4. And such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Um, Now, Paul is talking about, this here harkens back to verse 2, you are a letter written in our hearts and known and read by all men, so that the existence of the church in Corinth that came into existence through the gospel that Paul preached in Corinth and God's Holy Spirit convicting them of their sins and their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ was how a church came to be in Corinth. And the existence of this church shows the legitimacy of Paul's ministry. And that legitimacy is found not just not in the person of Paul, although he's legitimately an apostle, but in the gospel that he preached. Okay? And so only the gospel can create a church that's a church as defined by the Bible. Does, isn't that a, it seems like a very simple idea, but it's one that if the whole church believed it, would change most of what's going on across the world in evangelical churches. If we believed that only the gospel can create a church, there would be no reason to do anything else, would there? And uh, there would be no reason to, like I think I told you a story, somebody called me, and they said their church spent $30,000 to put an ice skating rink in their parking lot. And then when the neighbors came to skate, nobody preached the gospel to them or even handed out tracks or anything. They just skate. Well, how's that a mission outreach? And you see, skating will not create a church. <laughs> okay, You can skate and skate and skate and skate and skate and maybe put up some hockey goals and do all kind of stuff, but you will never end up with a church. And even if you persuaded those skaters to show up on Sunday, if you don't preach the gospel then, you still don't create a church. Because as we pointed out last week, if you look at Acts <coughs> Acts chapter 2, it, it tells us how God adds people to the church. Those who are being saved through the apostolic message of the gospel. And that is the only way anybody can enter the church. It's through the gospel and be a part, uh, as as defined biblically. 
So, that, so Paul is therefore saying that they exist is um, uh, his confidence that God is using the gospel and that this is a testimony by all, to all men that God is at work in the church. So the word confidence there, uh, parousia in the Greek, which uh, is a, a very important word, is, is used many times in the Bible. And the issue with the word confidence is why we have it and who we have it in. All right? Why we have confidence is because of the work of God in, in our lives through Christ and what He's doing. And who we have it in is in Christ. Now, if we have confidence in ourselves, that's not a good thing. Because, um, look at verse 5. Not that we are adequate in ourselves. So Paul's confidence isn't in the flesh. There's a passage to look up, Robert, uh, Philippians 1.6. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So there's that word confidence, and it's the confidence that if God actually began the work, which we can see because of conversions, that the God who converted the sinner is the very God who will protect the, the Christian, who will guard us, who will carry us along, being led by the Spirit means to be carried, literally, and who will bring us to glory. So someone uh, emailed me who said, uh, I think it was just a legitimate question. Somebody was asking, well, how can we know that those are saved are going to stay that way? Doesn't the Bible warn us about apostasy? Which it certainly does. But how do you know? Show me a Bible verse that, that would convince me that the saved are going to stay that way and are going to end up in glory. So, I said, okay, Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. And I went to this passage, and it's about the work of the Holy Spirit. So our confidence is in the God who called us. In fact, there's a passage that says, Faithful is he who called you, who also do it. I think it's in Thessalonians. Romans 8. It says in verse 28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom He predestined, He called, and whom He called, He justified, and whom He justified, these He also glorified. So the justified are also the ones who shall be glorified. And so I said to the person, if one person who was at one time justified is up in hell, then this Bible verse is a lie. But God cannot lie. Yes? Yeah, but, but from our perspective, that's those who are truly justified that have the Word of God in the living faith. And from the outside, we can't tell what that is. Right. And there's people that will be apostate because they, uh, the like the seed that fell on the thorny, on the thorny ground, yeah. that it looks like they might be welcoming us in, looks like they might be having a faith, but it's just not a true faith. So from our perspective, looking at others or even looking at ourselves, it's not something we should uh, take lightly because it's not a once saved, always saved, so I'm fine kind of thing. If you think that, the problem is you're probably on the wrong side of that. Yeah, um, it's not a crass idea that, okay, I, I, just, I determined I'm justified, so now I can go live for the devil the rest of my life uh, and go to heaven. If somebody has that motivation, they're not probably not justified. Because part of being justified is that by faith you believe the gospel and you've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit and born again. And the Holy Spirit who indwells us gives us a desire to be like Jesus. So if we want to be like the devil... There's something seriously wrong with our claim of being justified. Just to further highlight the um, point in Romans 8, uh, Paul gives us the doctrine in Romans 8, and then he gives us really this song at the end 
beginning with verse 37, saying, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul really gives us an all-inclusive list there. You know, I've, I've debated this issue with a lot of people. And they'll say, yeah, well, you know, Paul gives us a lot of things there. But he says, he doesn't say that I can't separate myself from the love of God. But you look in the context there, and you look, he very specifically says, no, any other created thing. And then I'll always ask them, are you a created thing? Did God, did God create you? <laughs> did God create you? If, if he did, which he did, then you are included here. And just to highlight the point that the Bible affirms that there will be people that appear to be saved, that may have a confession, um, but thus fall away, and we're never truly justified. Uh, we read in, in 1 John that um, John proclaims, these people went out from us, but they went out from us so that it would be demonstrated that they never really were of us. Mm-hmm. So they were members of the community. They may have had some outward signs or a confession, but they never really had the inward change that defined them as being of the community of God. Right. So he, he who began the good work will complete it. But that completed work looks like something. It looks like serving Jesus Christ, not the world. All right? Now, I'm going to quote um, a commentary by the name, a guy named Barnett has a good commentary on 2 Corinthians. Um, here Paul makes a simple assertion that we had, we have such confidence, a confidence pointing back to the tangible existence of the Corinthian church as the evidence that Paul is a minister of Christ. His confidence does not spring from the commendation of others or from himself, but rather from the presence of the Spirit in the hearts of the Corinthians. This confidence is directed toward God and is through Christ. The Corinthians are a letter from Christ. Christ is the author of Paul's letter of recommendation, therefore of his confidence. For Paul, the God word confidence rather than human word commendation is important. Self-commendation advertises oneself, whereas confidence towards God reflects a deep trust in God arising from Paul's careful reflection about his ministry. So confidence in self is kind of a worthless thing. Have you heard uh, just the general advice columns and talk shows? Have you ever heard people say, well, you have to believe in yourself? Have you ever heard of a more miserable object of faith? (laughs) No, we need to believe in Christ. Yes, Dick. Is this a good time for you to comment on that Horton article you just sent out? Oh, the one um, that I that's in Modern Reformation. The church is the creation of the. Oh, that it's so good! It's so good. (laughs) Keith loves the article too. Uh, If you if you if you don't get the magazine Modern Reformation, it would be worth getting the issue that just came out. I think it's April, March, April, whatever. And Michael Horton has an article in there about the, the function of the Word of God in the church and how God creates the church, how God nurtures the church. It's, it's, uh, it's, what's the title? Creation of the Word? Well, maybe I kind of set it up. I think that that article pertains to the next verse in a tremendous amount of what's happening here. As far as the letter and the Spirit? Yeah, I think if you look on the first part of this in Paul's commendation, if you think of the church being brought forth out of the dead masses of Corinth because they were all spiritually dead, and think of Lazarus stuck in the tomb, dead, the church could no more birth itself in Corinth than Lazarus could raise himself from the dead because he was really dead and he didn't have anything to say about it. And when (laughs) Jesus came to Lazarus and said, live, come forth, Lazarus from the dead came forth because Jesus brought him forth. And that life that came into that body and came forth was a visible evidence of God's, God's moving. And Paul's using the same kind of analogy here. 
he's common because the church exists, because he preached, that's enough commendation for him in his message because the existence of the church from this dead mass of Corinth is proof of his message is true. Absolutely. So anyhow, that's what Michael Horton's article is one of the finest descriptions of the work of the Scripture. I sent a copy of it to uh, Keith and Dick. Uh, isn't it? Fa- in fact, I sent it to all the elders. It's just absolutely fabulous. I, I, I actually emailed them asking for permission to put it on a website, and I promised that I'd, I'd send them readers if they would let me do that. Um, so, Modern Reformation, latest issue, I think they have a website, modernreformation.org, and Michael Horton. Michael Horton. And it is the most thorough description of the work of the Word of God to cause the church to come into being and then to nurture that church. And that uh, the preached Word, he, he claims, is extremely important. And he quotes Paul from Romans 10 to that end. The Word preached. okay, So that the Word preached will call forth uh, from the dead people to become members of the church through conversion and shall powerfully impact those people who are already converted, having the power to change lives, having the power to effectively touch something inside of us as we hear the truth of the Word and working in us and changing us and causing us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And it's a powerful work. Yes. You know, what he... Horton equates the Word of God. It's not just a series of ethics and rules that we look to for guidance, but he says it's living and active, and the Word is God's action. So when God spoke, the world came into existence, and when Christ spoke, the church came into existence. And the speaking and preaching of the Word brings the church into existence, which exactly is what Paul's saying here. Absolutely. And um, any uh, any elders or pastors who would read that article and believe it would become convinced that nothing ever should be in the pulpit but the pure preaching of the Word. And the Word purely preached through uh, a stammering lips and lack of eloquence will powerfully save people. And... Uh, human wisdom preacher and the most eloquent preacher in the face of the earth will do nothing. It'll tickle ears. But it has no power to call the church into existence and has no power to sanctify the saved. Yes. In relation to what uh, Keith mentioned, it brings to mind that verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. He made us alive. And so that's the Lazarus analogy. So Jesus says, Lazarus come forth, and he was made alive physically. And when the gospel goes forth, the Holy Spirit says to a dead sinner, come alive. And you stand up and you're a Christian. You, you come out of the grave. You come out of the grave of sin and darkness and you walk into the light of, of life in Jesus Christ. And uh, may we never, ever lose our uh, passion about the gospel and our belief that God is going to use it. And so that's why we preach it, because God will use it. And uh, it's his work. And that's what Paul's saying here. Our sufficiency... Is that from ourselves? Now look at verse 5. Not that we are adequate in ourselves. To consider anything is coming from ourselves. Now, the word consider is logisosthai, and it means to reckon. It's, it's, it's where we get a word, it's related to our word logic. All right? So consider means to reckon. So to think about this and consider it, and, and taking into consideration that our adequacy is not from ourselves. That God uses the weak, the needy, to show that the power is from Him. Uh, We saw that same lesson in Exodus as I'm preaching through Exodus. Moses had all kinds, there are all kinds of obstacles and problems. The people aren't going to believe. Pharaoh's not going to believe. I'm not a good speaker. You probably should find somebody else. Remember, remember the Exodus 3 and 4, Moses, one, 
objection after another. But God chose to use Moses because it didn't matter. All these things didn't matter. It only mattered that God chose to use him. Right? And God's answer to Moses time and time again is what? Remember? What was his answer? Moses says, who am I? What did God say? I am. <laughs> All right. So Paul is really expressing the same thing. Who am I? Well, God says, I am. I am. That's all you need to know. All right, let's look up some passages. Uh, Michelle, you want to look up? Here we are. Exodus 4, 10 through 12. And Dale, John 15, 5. Carl, Jeremiah 1, 6 through 10. And Kathy, Luke 21, 15. Lincoln, Philippians 2, 13. And Phyllis, Philippians 4, 13. Okay, the first cross-reference is Exodus 4, 10 through 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in the time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then, go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. Well, it's pretty clear, isn't it? <laughs> Moses said, I've never been eloquent recently, nor in times past, and I don't think I'm going to become that way anytime soon. <laughs> so uh, how can I be the one to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go? And God says, I'll be with your mouth. <laughs> so if you, uh, by analogy, and this is what Paul, Paul's talking about, because he's going to make a Moses analogy here in, in this passage, by analogy, we're adequate servants of the new covenant because God is with us and he'll be with our mouth. And so you can share the gospel and God will use it to add members to the, his church. Okay, John fifteen five, Dale. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, I guess that's clear enough. <laughs> apart from me, you can do nothing. And we got to remember that. Jeremiah 1, 6 through 10. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, because I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out his hand, and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So that was the call of Jeremiah, who, like Moses, protested that he was just a youth and wasn't the one to be able to speak. And God touched him and sent him anyhow. Luke twenty-one fifteen. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to con contradict or resist. So he'll give us wisdom that our adversaries will not resist. He, that was a promise to the disciples. Philippians 2.13 For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Good. It's God at work in us. Uh, right back there to Phyllis. And Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's a good verse. <laughs> I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Uh, Barnett says, since he does not regard himself as self-sufficient, he cannot be self-commended. Confidence which he has... <clears throat> uh, excuse me. Confidence which he has is different from sufficiency of himself. He does not possess enough even to reckon whether he has it. Okay, he doesn't have enough to even use logic to figure out whether he has it. No, sufficiency as he has for apostolic ministry is from God. It is toward God that he has his confidence, but it is only from God that he has his sufficiency. So sufficiency comes from God, and our confidence is in God, and we don't put confidence in the flesh. We don't look for confidence in self, 
But we know that God uses the weak and the needy to do mighty things. So I guess there's hope for all of us, wouldn't you say? Amen. <laughs> We're all qualified if we know the Lord. Now, I'm going to move on to a passage that we probably won't even be able to finish today because it is uh, one of the most misused and misapplied and misunderstood verses in the entire Bible throughout the entirety of church history. And what happened with this verse ought to give us a really good appreciation for just how important it is to interpret the Bible correctly. Because when we come to see what happened to the church because of misinterpreting one verse, it should cause us to go take hermeneutics. Right? A little advertisement for Thursday night. We need to know what God said. Because hearing the words that God said and then misinterpreting them is the same as not hearing what God said. You know, if you communicate to your wife or to anybody and she misinterprets it, then you didn't communicate. And so, uh, I hear, like MacArthur says, you have to know the meaning of Scripture because the meaning of Scripture is the Scripture. Without the meaning, you haven't heard what God said. And therefore, uh, if you've heard that CD that he sent out about the emergent church, uh, MacArthur is absolutely uh, appalled at the attack against the clarity of Scripture. That, this, that people are saying, you can't really know what it means. Nobody can know what the Bible means. It's an attack against the clarity of Scripture, which is an attack against one of the more important uh, doctrines of the Reformation. The belief that the people could read the Bible and should read the Bible in their languages and that they could actually know what it means. But they didn't need somebody in a red pointy hat to tell them what it means. Okay. A, a scripture verse, uh, second, second Peter chapter three, verse, uh, 15 through 16. Uh, Peter declares, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the Scriptures, to their own destruction. So distortion of the Scriptures leads the people who do such things to destruction. And we can see, and I'm sure we'll see that as you yeah. expound this passage here, how yeah. unstable and untaught people distorting the Word of God leads to destruction. All right, so that's another testimony to how important it is that we understand what it does mean and what it does say. Now, um, uh, Robert, could you look up for me? There's a, I'm going to refer back to an earlier passage in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 2.16. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Yeah, he just now is answering that question. He raised the rhetorical question in 2.16, who is sufficient for these things? And then he went off explaining a bunch of other material, and now he's going to answer the question he raised there. And here's the answer. Who also made us adequate? Okay, so the answer to who is sufficient for these things, that is, the proclamation of the gospel, that at one and the same time, brings an aroma of life, salvation, and aroma of, aroma of death, condemnation, to the hearers, depending on their response to it. Who is adequate to these things? Paul says, God, those whom God has made adequate, right? Who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills and the Spirit gives life. Now, um, uh, made us adequate in the Greek is in the aorist, aorist tense. That's a point in time. 
and probably here Paul referring to his conversion and calling that you can read about in Acts chapter 9 as he is converted and God sends Ananias to pray for him because Paul had lost his eyesight. And then Ananias said that God was going to show him what great things he must suffer. Um, so Paul is called. So he, he was made adequate by the act of God at a point in, in time in the past as servants. Now the, the word here for servants, uh, uh, diakonos, where we get our word deacon, diakonos, the word there is used 36 times by Paul, that, that Greek word, 20 of them in 2 Corinthians. So that helps us understand themes. Repeated words are how you see themes of letters. So being a servant is a theme of 2 Corinthians because of 20 times the word is used in this passage. And 2 Corinthians is about ministry. And we learn a lot about ministry in this passage, I mean this book, because it's Paul's defense of his own ministry against the super apostles, the elitists, the hyper-spiritual ones, and others that had come to question Paul's gospel and Paul's ministry. So he has to defend himself, and so he describes his ministry as a servant. Um, and Paul uses the term diakonos in the context of his charge to preach the word of God. So we are called to be servants of the gospel itself. We're here as servants of the gospel of a new covenant. Now, this new covenant is the one we read about last week in Jeremiah uh, chapter, I believe, chapter 33. Maybe we should read that again in case. 30, no, 3133. Uh, Keith, could you look up Jeremiah 3133 so we get that back in our minds? I know, I know we read it last week, but we're still on the topic, so... But this is the covenant which I make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they will not teach again each man to his neighbor, even each man to his brother, saying, Know the Lord. But they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Okay, that's very telling. So under the New Covenant, all the brethren know the Lord. Now, and their sins are forgiven. So who is he talking about? Who are these New Covenant people? The elect? Yeah, the church. Everybody's saved. Because you can't be a part of the covenant without entering through the blood atonement. And all who enter through the blood atonement know the Lord. So this, this brotherhood, uh, brothers and sisters, all have their sins forgiven. They all know the Lord. And the law is written on every one of their hearts. Now, what that means, I believe, is that this work of grace that God does through His Holy Spirit changes us internally. It changes our hearts, our minds, our motivations, everything so that we're new creatures in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, and it doesn't change the objective content of God's moral law, but it changes our relationship to it in that our sins are forgiven. So whereas before the law was condemning us, the law was declaring to us that we're guilty before the judge. Paul talks about that in Romans, particularly Romans 7, and he talks about the 10th commandment. He said it slew him, <laughs> the King James. <laughs> um, it, it, it killed him because when it says thou shalt not covet, um, remember the, was it, who was the young, was it a young ruler who said all of these I've kept from my youth up? Jesus said, well, what, it, what, what does it say to you? And he, and he mentioned some of the commandments and he said he's kept those. And so Jesus said, okay, go sell all you have, give the poor. And the guy went away and said, well, I can't keep that one. So, the Tenth Commandment about coveting is a hard issue 
And no one can claim innocence. Someone could say, I never had a graven image. Someone could say, I never practiced idolatry. Someone might say they haven't stole. Somebody can say, well, I never committed adultery. But who can say I never coveted it? Coveted. <laughs> uh, well, you can. And then, so the law, in, in its uh, literal sense, is going to kill in the sense that Paul talks about in Romans 7. It's going to kill the proud Pharisee. It's going to kill the proud sinner that thinks he doesn't need forgiveness or doesn't need the blood atonement. And the Spirit is going to make alive because once we're convicted by the law and uh, the Gospel becomes good news that Jesus paid the penalty for us. So that's the whole intent of preaching the law and the gospel. Um, not of the letter, the new covenant written on hearts, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills and the spirit gives life. Now I have a whole bunch of material. Let me, um, I'm finding this commentary by, let me see, this is my new American commentary, David Garland. I'm finding it to be an excellent commentary on 2 Corinthians. And he has some material about the history of interpretation of this passage. Okay, so I'm going to start reading here from Garland on this commentary. Letter cannot refer to the law itself since Paul affirms that the law is spiritual, Romans 7.14. Yet it is clearly connected to the law in some way and must refer to some aspect of it. Origen argued that letter, this is where the false doctrine came from, Origen. And I consider Origen a heretic, not a church father. I said that in class when I was at seminary, we were studying the church fathers. And I said, why do they call Origen a church father when he was nothing but a rank heretic? And everybody laughed because of my boldness, you know. But uh, he was. He did more damage to the church than anybody ever called a church father. Well, here's what he, here's one of the damages Origen did. For, for one, of the, one of the things Origen did he was... was very, he was very early. He was right. Real early on. He was one of the first anti-Semites in the church, of the church fathers, in my opinion. And he, and he turned, used the allegorical interpretation, turned, was against the Jews and turned away from the millennial belief that the church held before on grounds that it was too Jewish and too literal. Because he was a hyper-spiritual guy, he didn't think Jesus literally reigning in Jerusalem over a restored Israel was, was, was proper at all. In fact, it was beneath Jesus and it was beneath the church. So he rejected the Jews, rejected uh, the millennium, yeah, because on the grounds of being literal and carnal, in other words, real. Because this guy was a, a mystic, Origen was. I won't even tell you what he did to himself because it would be not polite and there might be children present. It's very bad. All right, here's what it says here. Uh, the, <coughs> Origen argued that letter referred to the literal external sense of Scripture and that spirit referred to the spiritual internal sense of Scripture. This passage then became the support for the allegorical interpretation of Scripture which he championed and which dominated biblical exegesis for centuries. Few may make the same distinction between two levels of meaning in the text, but some still argue that Paul contrasts two different ways of understanding the text, the literal and the spiritual. So there are still people who think this way. The Spirit is understood to be the hermeneutical key for understanding Scripture. Now, that sounds spiritual. Let me tell you, let me bring this up to the present. You know somebody who does this very thing now? Brian McLaren, the, the, the guru of the emergent church. I just read his book, The Secret Message of Jesus, and he's using this same hermeneutic. He says the Holy Spirit tells the church how to interpret the Scripture. And so then Brian finds a secret message that the church never knew about by reading with the Holy Spirit the Bible, not necessarily following the literal sense. And what he ends up with is the secret message of Jesus is the social gospel. 
And well, what, he didn't discover it because it's been around for a hundred years. Yes. I would say that that this that concept is what's behind almost every sect and movement in church history. The Roman Catholic Church is where they get their teaching comes out of that. The allegorical. And, yeah. and most of the most of every sect that's come out of Christianity ends up having a spiritual interpretation of one passage or another. So instead of fighting about or arguing about where the truth is on a, a good hermeneutic, one will say, well, the Spirit told me this, therefore it's true. And it all gets back to that concept. Yep. And uh, it, it, this, uh, it sounds, the thing that fools people is it sounds pious. Well, the Holy Spirit tells us what it means. Well, that, that sounds like, does that sound good? But the Holy Spirit's telling 500 people 500 different things what it means, and so you end up with no authority at all. Anybody can say, well, the Holy Spirit tells me it means this. So who's to refute that? You know, uh, Origen started that allegorical interpretation of Ezekiel, the last ten chapters as well. Um, and what's happening there is it's a description of the temple. Well, when he spiritualizes it, he really is perverting the scripture because how do you spiritualize the meaning of a doorway or the height of a doorway? What does that indicate? Or the, the, you know, the length of the, the temple itself. So it can mean anything, and that's what he did. And the reason why is because he wanted to reject the idea that Christ is going to reign, like you said, in a premillennial uh, reign a thousand years in Jerusalem. Right. And so, again, they spiritualize things, and they can mean anything. Absolutely. So. And so that, uh, the idea that the Holy Spirit working in the church determines the meaning of Scripture is nothing more than saying the reader decides the meaning. And Ryan has been dealing with this in his hermeneutics class. Uh, the reader doesn't determine the meaning. The author determines the meaning. All right? And, 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 uh, uh, but they say, well, no, the author is the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit determines the meaning. But, what they're, but they're, they're playing with words because they're saying the Holy Spirit tells me the, the author's meaning is not conveyed by the text itself in a literal, historical, grammatical sense. It's just encrypted in there, and then the Holy Spirit gives us the, the decoder ring. Okay. Remember that uh, movie with the Christmas story? They had, they, we were watching that with my mom, and my mom said, I had one of those when I was a kid. Those decoder rings turned out to be a gyp. What did it say? Buy Ovaltine? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, enough of that. Now back uh, to um, Garland here. Uh, the Spirit is understood to be the hermeneutical key for understanding Scripture. Although this principle uh, may be true, although it really isn't, it is not what Paul had in mind when he distinguished letter and spirit. The Spirit denotes a divine power that gives life rather than a divine inspiration that opens the, uh, the true meaning of Scripture. The Spirit implies God's new action in Christ that enables believers to do what they could not do otherwise, obey the letter. A comparable view interprets letter to mean a legalistic interpretation of the law. This interpretation relates to the letter to the veil that hardens the minds of those in Israel rather than hearing the covenant. Um, but here's, here's the key point. This interpretation ignores that Paul specifically contrasts God's inscribing the law on stones with God's inscribing it on human hearts through the Spirit. Interpreting... Um, Letter, interpreting letter to mean some warped perception or misuse of the law also does not fit the context. Okay, so there are many misinterpretations of this, and I want to show you from church history that it goes back a ways. I can find this. I can't read all of this, but I I printed out John Calvin's interpretation or commentary on First Corinthians three and verse six. Um. He talks about the law and the gospel. <clears throat> he says this, For my part, I see no evidence that the false apostles had there confounded the law and the gospel. I'm rather of the opinion that, as he had to do with lifeless declaimers, who endeavored to obtain applause through mere pratting, and as he saw that the ears of the Corinthians were captivated with such glitter, he was desirous to show them what was the chief excellence of the gospel and what was the chief praise of its ministers. Now this he makes to consist of the efficacy of the Spirit. A, a, a comparison between the law and gospel was fitting in no ordinary degree to show this. This appears to me 
to be the reason why he came to enter upon it. There is, however, no doubt that by the term letter, he means the Old Testament, and as by the term spirit, he means the gospel. For after having called himself a minister of the New Testament, he immediately adds, by way of exposition, he's a minister of the spirit and contests the letter with the spirit. Now, I mean, what, we must inquire into the reason of this designation. The exposition, this is Calvin hundreds of years ago. The exposition contrived by origin has got into general circulation that by the letter we ought to understand the grammatical and genuine meaning of Scripture or the literal sense, and that by the Spirit is meant the allegorical meaning, which is commonly reckoned to be the spiritual meaning. So Calvin was rebuking that falsehood at the time of the Reformation because it had led to this whole history of the teaching magisterium, the, the Pope declaring uh, things to be true that you couldn't possibly find from the Scripture because there was this hidden allegorical sense and there was a spiritual sense that could be found by a spiritual person that would not be derived from the actual literal meaning of the text. Okay? So I think uh, what Paul is meaning by the letter kills will be explained as we go through 2 Corinthians. But we have to interpret it in light of Romans 7 where he talks about how it killed him. It, 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 it killed him as the self-righteous Pharisee. And the law declares sin to be sin. And what actually kills is our sinfulness. And the holy law of God reveals sin to be what it is. All right? And unless we believe the gospel, the law can only condemn. It cannot save. But it doesn't mean in any regard that the Bible doesn't mean what it says. It has some secret spiritual meaning. That's not, I wrote an article about this over ten years ago. And the title of the article was, Does the Bible Warn Against Its Own Study? And I did uh, some exegetical work on this passage. Does the Bible warn against its own study? Because I was debating some, uh, at the time, in the early 90s and late 80s, I was debating with some charismatic brothers who were using this verse to warn against Bible study. And they were saying that if you'd go into all of this doctrine, that you're just going to die spiritually. And that you want, if you want life, you've got to emphasize the Holy Spirit. And the way they emphasized the Holy Spirit was through revival meetings and experiences and uh, manifestations and being slain under the power and the Toronto blessing came on the heels of that sort of thing. This was a little bit before that started in the late 80s. So they, they, this was their favorite proof text against studying doctrine. Yes? And I think that Horton article that we're talking about right now does a better job of explaining the work of the Spirit through the Word of God than anything I've probably ever read. Because he's talking about the Spirit coming through the words, and as the words themselves are proclaimed, the Spirit's active in the same way God said, let there be light, and there was light, because God had said it. And as we proclaim the Gospel, or as people proclaim the Word of God, the Word itself carries power because it, it's, the Holy Spirit embodies it. Yeah, and so in a sense they were doing the opposite of what this verse is... Yeah, they're removing the Spirit from the Word and giving the Holy Spirit uh, work some other means than what God ordained. The means being go to revival meetings, the means being uh, speaking in tongues, or the means being slain under the power, or the means being going to uh, the laughing revival. I mean, whatever may be going on, that's ascribed to the Spirit. But the teaching of the Word, and which Luther claimed... The word come, the spirit comes to us through the word. If you go back to your your concept of the meaning of scripture is scripture. If I take the meaning and still say that I'm giving you scripture, but it's been stripped of its meaning, the Holy Spirit isn't there anymore because the meaning isn't conveyed by the passage itself anymore. Exactly, the Holy Spirit doesn't work through a misinterpreted Bible. He works through what it actually says. Jesus said that my words are spirit and life. Okay? Words convey meaning. Words, God's words convey God's meaning. The words mean what they say. And the more we understand them correctly, the more the Holy Spirit is coming to us and working in our life. And so it's a, a terrible irony that these brethren that I was debating with were, were pushing doctrine, 
Scripture meaning, meaning and study out of their churches and bringing in um, inspired prophets who try to work up everybody's emotions and make and try to do signs and wonders, they thought that they were going to accentuate the work of the Spirit. But that is the opposite. That You couldn't do any better at quenching the Spirit. Okay? Because the Holy Spirit comes to us through the Word. And uh, it, it, I would, I hope that I get permission to put that. I, I may not get the permission, but if not, you find that article in Modern Reformation and read it by Michael Horton. It's just unbelievable uh, explanation of this. Yes? I think the Bible... Um actually just tells us to do just the opposite in terms of um, not um, ignoring the Scriptures, but that we need to be in the Scriptures. Going back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, unless we drift away. Amen. <laughs> Read on. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Yes, so God, the signs and wonders God did through the apostles bore witness that they had the words of Jesus that they were the authoritative apostles of the New Covenant and that their words were, were authoritative. And therefore, if we don't pay heed to the words spoken to us through the Lord himself and through his apostles, we are neglecting our salvation and we shall not escape. Good passage, Robert. Thank you. And again, the words conveyed by the apostles that was their understanding of what Jesus had said. It wasn't magic words. It was their understanding of what the truths of the Gospels were, what the truth that Jesus is communicating. So even the passage Ryan spoke of, talking about Paul's letters contained things hard to understand, but were commanded, commanded to understand them, because if we do not understand the meaning of what Paul said, we will be destroyed. Absolutely. And understanding, I, I can't remember who I was talking to, I don't know, or emailing or whatever, but I said to someone, just get a computer concordance, and look up the word understand and understanding. Or use a paper one if you don't have a computer. But if you look up the word understand and understanding, even in the Gospels, you'll see that God wants us to understand. Okay? Jesus often asks, do you not understand? You know? And to not be able to understand is a curse because it's a judgment of hardening. But to the ones who are listening, to babes, God reveals these things, and he reveals them to our understanding. Yes. Yeah, I was just sitting here, and I'm thinking about uh, us being in church and hearing the word and hearing it truthfully and how many uh, people are out there not hearing it truthfully. If I go look back and uh, in the back of my Bible, we have uh, references to listening and to hearing. Hundreds and hundreds of references in Scripture to that. Absolutely, listening and hearing. And that's how the Holy Spirit comes to us. That's how the Holy Spirit is working through means of grace. So, um, we're this is, I know that may, maybe we're preaching to the choir, but I'm hoping the choir spans out there as people here on the inter internet. And, uh, if we believe what we're saying today, what sense would it be for me to preach a sermon about how to manage your money and reduce your stress. It, it would be empty prattle. It would have no power to change you. Okay? Church is not a self-help seminar. It's a place where we come to fellowship around the Word of God, communion, breaking bread, prayer, the means of grace. Today we have communion, it's a means of grace. And even communion is a tangible expression of the Word. Okay? And the Holy Spirit comes to us through the Word. So thank you. Oh, uh, are you going to be here next week? Okay. Somebody asked if we would be willing to host a forum, discussion forum, on the latest CIC article. Okay? Now the topic of the article is personal words from God. 
Are they inerrant? Are they binding? Are they authoritative? And what does it mean for God to speak to us in some way beyond Scripture? And how do we handle that sort of thing? I've been getting all kinds of questions from emails from readers. And so uh, we'll still talk about the Word, as we're seeing today, but, but we're going to discuss topically next week that article. So if you got a copy of the article, why don't you just write down your questions, okay? I've gotten, and I'll bring some with me that I've gotten via email, and we'll take questions and then answer the questions. Because what we want to see is if this paradigm that we're explaining covers all the bases. So that'll be next Sunday. We'll have a discussion on that, and then we'll get back to 2 Corinthians.